Um, okay, if you want to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, if you've got a Bible with you, Exodus chapter 1, it'd be really good if you have one uh, to have it in front of you. We are going to look, um, probably maybe a one-off, maybe uh, in the future I may return to Exodus at some point, we're going to look at the beginning of the Exodus story. The Exodus story is, in many ways, our origin story. The, you know, like in different cultures, each culture will have a kind of different origin story. Perhaps for the British, maybe one that might feature highly is D-Day, you know, the moment when we kind of uh, took back freedom over you know, Europe, and you know that, how the rest of the story, end of World War II, etc. For Americans, it's probably independ- uh, the whole um, Thanksgiving moment when uh, the pilgrims and the Mayflower, etc., etc. Et Every culture has different parts of an origin story. And this book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible... Is, is our origin story. Now, I might say it sounds strange to you because you look at this and think, well, surely this is the, the story of the people of Israel. Maybe you remember it. The people of Israel are in slavery uh, in Egypt, and then God rescues them, brings them out, and kind of sends them on the way to the promised land. Surely it's their origin story. Well, no, actually, remember, if you're a Christian, you've been grafted in to the people of Israel, Romans 11 tells us, actually, you, this is your story. This is the, the paradigm that goes through Scripture. You'll see it again and again mentioned of the story of liberation, of freedom, of salvation. This, it says, you were once slaves. We say as Christians, you were once slaves to sin, slaves to sin with a destiny of death. But no, God has rescued you, given you redemption. He's brought you into freedom. And this story kind of acts to underscore that reality. We're going to pick up the story, verse 8. And and just before before we get to this point, um, it's quite an interesting story. Joseph, um, one of 12 brothers, uh, gets taken to Egypt, uh, sold into slavery, but God prospers him. He finds a high position in the court of Pharaoh. And then he really, he's favored. And eventually uh, God uses him to kind of bring about the end to a... uh, to feed his own family. Um, and eventually, Joseph and Jacob, uh, his father and his other brothers, find themselves in Egypt. They're given actually the best, they're given some of the best land. They're favored. When Joseph uh, buries his father, the, some of the Pharaoh's court officials are with him. So they're kind of at the very high point. And what we're going to see in this passage is actually what happens quickly is that position is reversed. They find themselves descending first into a kind of uh, racially based oppression, and then eventually into slavery and genocide. So we're going to read um, from verse 8 to 22. Now there arose a great, arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape, perhaps even take over, from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. 
in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of the Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We are confronted with a moment of profound evil. Do you notice the, kind of the sense of oppression? You hear all the language of a bitter and hard service. They deal ruthlessly with the people of God. This is horrific, horrific suffering. They've been separated. Some of them will have been separated from their families. They are suffering awfully. And eventually, what does it lead to? It leads to infanticide. It leads to him telling these midwives to kill the baby boys as a way of uh, crippling the nation, effectively, to say, well, if we kill the boys, then the nation will not flourish. It will not grow. He's threatened by these Israelites. And it leads to genocide at the end. He even tells his whole nation to throw the baby boys into the Nile. And of course, this first of all should just disabuse us of the notion that the people of God won't suffer. There's a sometimes in some people's minds a kind of assumption that because I follow God, I won't go through suffering like everybody else. Surely God will protect me. Well, no, look all the way through the pages of Scripture again and again. We are confronted by the reality of suffering. There's no doubt that you will suffer because you live in a fallen world and because there is evil. The reality of evil here, Pharaoh, evil, a nation acting and walking in evil. So it should disabuse us of any kind of notion that we won't suffer. Also, actually, it should just challenge that kind of vague idea that often circulates, which is that the, the Bible has no political implications. We are confronted with two great evils in this story. We see the evil of racial hatred leading to oppression, leading to mistreatment. In fact, some commentators look at this passage and they say, this is kind of has all the hallmarks of a kind of um, oppressive leader leading to kind of genocide, how he tells his people, oh, these people are to be feared. We, they're, you know, they're a threat to us, so we've got to attack them. How often you will have heard that throughout history. So it challenges any kind of uh, racial hatred or oppression that exists around the world. It also, we are c- confronted with the evil of abortion, of infanticide. Now, infanticide, obviously, here that he's telling them to, to kill the babies as they come out of the womb. But obviously, the principle remains. We are confronted by man's attempt to take life in a way that is not their place to take. And that is the evil of abortion. 
So right there, we're confronted with two evils. Now, Christians will have all sorts of different contexts and different uh, convictions about how you might um, bring those Christian convictions to bear in the public square, so to speak. But the Bible doesn't give us an option not to repudiate these two evils. So we see the evil. But we also see, and this is really where we're going to focus on today, profound courage. Note the people whose names are mentioned in the narrative. If you're reading some Old Testament narrative, you say, who am I meant to be focusing on? Well, look at the names. Two women, Shipra and Pua. Actually, behind them, there are other midwives. We never know the name of this pharaoh, this man who claims to be, in some sense, a semi-divine figure, probably one of the most powerful men in the, in the, in the world at the time. Yet he is just forgotten. No, the two names we are meant to mention, uh, we see Shipra and Pua, they're meant to draw our attention. What we are meant to see is that this is the story of profound courage in the face of evil. And what define, they, they, of course, they're, civil, they're civilly disobedient. They say no, essentially, when Pharaoh tells them to do it. Now, you know, you can get distracted by the excuse they give Pharaoh. It looks like the wor- very worst excuse. Oh, Hebrew women uh, give birth very quickly and Egyptian women don't. You know, I think we can, I think we say it doesn't really sound very plausible at the very least. But know that they would have almost certainly expected to die. The fact that they don't die, I think, has to be kind of seen as a, as a, as a gift from God that he saves their life in this moment. But to disobey Pharaoh like this would have meant death. And so we have to say, what is behind that courage? Well, the defining feature we see in these women is they fear God. Twice it's mentioned in the narrative. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And then later on, they're commended. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The defining mark of this story is that these women feared God. And so they, were, they resisted Pharaoh. Note, by the way, the contrast here. If you know the book of Exodus, you'll know that Pharaoh, the leader of the people of Egypt, is, his problem is that he doesn't fear God. There's no fear of God in him at all. That's why when there he's commanded to let the Israelites go... By, by Moses, but speaking on, behalf of, speaking on God's behalf, Pharaoh says in chapter 5, but who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You hear the defiance. Who's this God that I should listen to? I am Pharaoh. And he thinks of himself almost in divine terms. He's a despot. He's a power-hungry man. He has no fear of God. In fact, later on at the end of quite a few of the plagues, I think it's about seven plagues, um, Moses says to him, I can see that you, you still do not fear God. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. He's experienced multiple different points of suffering here. God has visited upon sickness on his people. He's killed his livestock. He's turned the Nile to blood. And yet, Pharaoh still doesn't fear God. So we're meant to see the contrast. A man who is exalting himself and proudly uh, asserting his own authority contrasted to these women who fear the living God. What do we mean by fear God? Well, really, it's to have a sense of reverential awe towards God, to recognize his majesty, his glory. Just as I read that psalm earlier, Psalm 47, that sense of recognizing that he is the king over the whole earth, that he reigns. 
a big view of God. I want to draw you a picture that this picture will, will really help you understand everything I have to say. These Hebrew women um, would have, Pharaoh would have wanted to assert himself over them. He would have wanted to intimidate them. In a sense, he would loom large over them. As they, every day as they were going about ignoring his commands and letting the baby boys live, he would have loomed large in their minds. He's, they know he has power of life and death over them. He could kill them in a moment. And yet, the living God looms larger. They feared God. They say, no, Pharaoh is nothing compared to the great God on high who reigns over the whole earth. Pharaoh claims to be in charge, but we know differently. We know the living God is the ultimate authority over the whole world. He is sovereign. Pharaoh claims to tell us what to do. No, we obey the Lord above him. We do not fear Pharaoh. That is the fear of God that these women have. So why is it important that we look at their example? Well, I think there's a few different reasons. First of which, these Hebrew women point us to Christ. All the way through the Old Testament, you'll see moments where you see figures, and they will just point to the coming saviour. These women were fearless in the face of suffering. They were obedient, even up to the possibility of death. And they were perfectly faithful. Well, they they were somewhat faithful at the very least, we can see. Isn't that pointing to the one who would be perfectly obedient, who would be perfectly faithful in the face of great suffering and evil? The one who would uh, endure and not despair, but would be confident of God's promises? These women point us to the ultimate perfect faithful one who is to come after them. And of course, we know as Christians, we are called to emulate him. We looked at that uh, last year, all those different episodes in Jesus' life where he is faithful against suffering, against attack, against rejection. And so we, too, are called to follow the ultimately, the perfectly faithful one. But also we see in this passage, I think, a paradigm, of a picture that we're going to see throughout the Bible, see it in the New Testament all the time, of a faithful Christian minority in a context that does not fear God. Isn't this the book of Acts, where the people of God are walking in obedience to God, and all around them, the people around them, just are scoffing, saying, who are you that you fear this God? Who are you that fear this Christ, this man who came? They're laughing at them. But no, they are faithfully fearing the living God. I think we see this in our culture. We see, I would say our, our culture is marked by a lack of fear of God. There's lots of things that mark our culture, but a lack of fear of God, I think, is one of them. Romans chapter 3 talks about um, something like there's no fear of God between their eyes. So I think, okay, you see our culture, you can see that all around them, the sense to which the idea that God would have the authority over your life, that God would instruct you and lead you and that you should obey him is just laughable to people. There's almost been a kind of systematic attack throughout the last two, three hundred years of kind of slowly deconstructing this idea to the point where we are the ones who are in charge. The Guardian, I think, had a, a kind of feature last weekend, uh, which, which was kind of an, a bunch of different atheists. And one of them said something like, um, the only God I worship is myself. That is the culture we live in, the, wor- the worship of self, self-exaltation, self-expression, to be authentic to myself. That is the ultimate goal in a world which has kind of ripped down any notion that there is a God who must be obeyed. And if there is a God, well, he's an old man in the sky. He's impotent, or he's a force, a force of nature, so he requires no obedience. This problem is out, this situation is our situation, an obedient people who fear God in the context of a culture that fails to. And of course, this speaks to our collective moment of suffering. 
I know many brothers and sisters are finding things hard at the moment for all sorts of different reasons. Heads are drooping, arms feel heavy, perhaps even a sense, and I think there's a sense to which we've almost been discipled into fear of COVID, or certainly fear of some of the ways it might shape our future. There's a sense to which this moment we live in a kind of, there's a culture of fear. We felt that, haven't we, over the last few months? In fact, that's been a kind of the strategy to try and keep us to follow guidelines. I'm not saying anything that's necessarily wrong about that. But there is, a, but there is fear in our culture. And there is a danger that you you almost might allow COVID to loom large in your mind too big. That actually you forget that ultimately there is a God who stands above it all, who is sovereign over the universe. So I want to just unpack what does it mean then to fear God? To be fearless in the face of suffering, to be confident of God's purposes and to walk in obedience. So first of all then, don't fear Pharaoh Those who fear God, we're going to unpack what it means to actually fear God. Those who fear God are fearless in the face of suffering and evil. Isn't it fascinating when you look at this passage that it's not just that they're differentiated, Pharaoh and the midwives, between their fear of God. Actually, you can see a great contrast in their fear of their situation. Here, the midwives, under a despotic ruler who has every ability and likelihood that he will kill them. And yet they're fearless. They're willing to go ahead with it, kind of come what may. And yet, what is Pharaoh? Well, he's the very opposite. You see, verse 7, the the, the people are expanding. But then verse 9, he said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Pharaoh is threatened. Pharaoh is threatened by what's happening. He said, these people are getting too many for us. We are potentially going to lose our our, our land, our privileges, our positions, our status. Later on in verse 12, the people are walking in dread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. One commentator talks about it as kind of pathological dread, sick with worry. So what you see here is that the people of God are fearless in the face of their suffering, and yet the people who don't follow God, well, they're full of fear. Isn't it fascinating? And what's going on behind that fear? Well, I think, really, it shows you about idolatry. What you have here is a man, Pharaoh, who is a power-hungry ruler. We can assume that very strongly. He's a despotic ruler. He thinks of himself as part of the Egyptian pantheon, that he should almost be worshipped. Yet he's worried about his position. He's worried about his status. And in fact, he's so worried, he's willing to kill for it. What are the things in your life that you are worried about? What are the things in your life that you're anxious about? Because I would suggest that follow those anxieties and you have a de- there is a chance that you will see, actually, the things that you worship. What are you fearful about? Because what you fear tells you what you worship. Think about your worst nightmares. Think about what you think about as you go to sleep at night, the things that keep you up at night. Those fears. Actually, those fears give you a window into seeing what you worship. What you're saying almost subconsciously, if this doesn't happen, if I don't have this, then I will be ruined. Now, these are good things sometimes. These are very, you might worship something that's a very good thing, a gift from God. But if you take it to the point where you hold it tightly and say, if I don't have this, I will be unhappy, I will be ruined, then actually it starts to control you. 
Your fears start to control you. Think about the the person who's obsessed with their career and starts to worry about losing their job and worry about what their boss thinks of them. Every time they're doing their work, they're thinking, oh, what are they going to think of me when I do this work? Actually, what's happened is that fear then becomes controlling. It starts to control you such that you just end up working and working and working. Maybe you wouldn't say I worship my work, but there's some part of you that's holding on to that with with an attitude that says, I must have this, that it's become a kind of idol, something that that you say is essential to my flourishing. Perhaps it's taken the place of God. And the problem is, the things that we worship are fundamentally fragile. I'll say that again. They are fundamentally fragile. The things that we long for, the things that we attach meaning to, there's every possibility those things will be taken away from us. In a moment, you could lose your job. Some terrible economic situation could happen, and, and you, could, you could be without a job. You could... Uh, even this COVID season, as a course, has just reinforced a reality that we all knew was true, but it's just reinforced, the re- reminded us of the fragility of our own lives, that our every life could be taken away from you in a moment. Your lives are fragile. So the very things that you hold on to, that you attach to, that you say, I must have this, the reason why we have anxiety, the reason why, we, why fears are so commonplace in our lives is because those things are fragile. They could be taken away in a moment. And this is what makes the the people of God different. This is why they look different to everybody else. Because they're able to countenance the possibility that they may lose these things because they have found something greater. Doesn't mean that it's not painful. Doesn't mean that suffering, that loss, doesn't feel painful. If you lose your job, that's that's not a nice thing. Nobody would wish that upon anybody. There are all sorts of things that we value that we care about, that we say, that, that's a good thing. And suffering and lament is real. doesn't mean that. But what it does say is, actually, when you know that you have found this unshakable kingdom, when you know you've received Christ, the things that become inconceivable actually become, th- become possible. You say, actually, yeah, I could lose my job, and I'd be okay, because I have Christ. I could, my children could not grow up to be perfect, obedient, wonderful children. And, that, and I actually can consider that possibility because even though that would be really hard, I worship the living God and I've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, which cannot be taken away from me. So we're not destroyed by loss. We're not fearful of suffering. These midwives are not fearful about what Pharaoh could do to them. The danger is that the, the, the fears, the things that we value, have loom large in our lives, almost to the point where we, they, they, they are, they've become far too big. Essentially, you could lose everything, and because you have the living God, you'll be fine. You could even lose your lives. These midwives are possibly contemplating losing their lives. But that will not deny, will not prevent the great hope of life eternal with, God, with the living God. So suddenly, actually, all suffering becomes... You can contemplate all suffering when you've found a life with Christ. Pharaoh wants you to fear him. He looms large. He wants to intimidate you. Actually, you just need to remember again that he's just so small compared to the living God. You've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Your life with Christ, your birthright, the privileges you've received in Christ, your sonship, that is something that can never be taken away from you. It is unshakable. All the other things in your life, well, actually, they could be taken away. James talks about this when he says, like, who are you arrogantly, boastfully saying this will happen and then that will happen? 
He's saying, no, you've got to be much more open-handed. You say, if God wills it, this will happen. Say, all the other details of your life could be shaken, and that's okay, because I'm with, the living God is with me, because I have him, and I can lose everything else and still be secure in him. We can sit in that kind of fundamental position of uncertainty, of not being able to control the future, because we know the living God. We've received this treasure that is much more valuable than anything else. So in your suffering, my question is, do you resemble Pharaoh or the midwives? Do you resemble Pharaoh or the midwives? Examine the roots of your anxiety. Examine and get to the bottom and say, what do I treasure that I think life is unthinkable without? Find what you worship, and then you say, even if I was to lose this, look that fear in the face and say, even if I was, this was to befall me, I could go on. Because life is possible with Christ. Realize that actually it's not as scary as you thought. And the second thing is put that fear next to the living God. Remember the picture. Pharaoh looms large, but actually compared to the, the, to the living God, he's just an illegitimate ruler who has actually no uh, ability to take away from you the gifts of God. He has no ability to remove from you this great unshakable kingdom. For me, it's probably fear of man. That's probably the fear that I struggle with the most is a concern about what people think of me or what will, what will people make of what I do and things like that. The great antidote to that fear is when I put these people next to the living God. I remember they're just skin and bones. They are nothing compared to the God who reigns over the universe and that I should give them such little credence. Their opinions matter so little compared to the God who reigns above. So we do not fear suffering we do not fear Pharaoh. We walk in fearlessness because we have received an unshakable kingdom. Second of all, don't despair. Those who fear God are confident that he will work out his purposes and be victorious. It's very easy when you're going through suffering to despair. Think about the Hebrew midwives in this moment. It feels pretty bleak, doesn't it? They've been brought into slavery. Perhaps they're questioning God's promises. God had told them that he would take them into this time and that he would bring them out to the land of Canaan. And yet, it doesn't seem like he's there. In fact, it's interesting. For the first 15 verses of this narrative, up to verse 17, first 16 verses, God isn't mentioned. It's almost like we're meant to see in this silence that sense of, where is God? Isn't that the kind of question that we, respond, that we call out to when we're experiencing suffering? Where is God? Isn't that why some of us have slipped into a kind of slight spiritual sloth right now? We're saying, where is God? Maybe a kind of bitterness, a sense of resentment, almost perhaps even subconsciously, how easy it is to kind of slightly grumble, slightly kind of feel frustrated, and then to pull back from God. Kind of sense, well, God is inactive. God has put me in this situation In fact, you're skeptical, some of you are skeptical when you hear the idea that God is at work in this season. You say, no, I don't really think he's at work. Not really at work in my life. We're going through living rubbish. I could say, use worse adjectives, worse language. This is pretty hard. Where's God in this? Don't tell me God's at work in this. Well, no, you've got to see, and the same as what these Hebrew midwives had to see, that God is at work in the hidden ways that God will work out his purposes in suffering. You must have that conviction, brothers and sisters. If you are to walk through any difficult season in your life, you must hold fast to the conviction that God will work out his purposes in that suffering. 
You must hold on to God's sovereignty if you are to survive in difficult seasons. You've got to see the way through this, through this passage, it's almost, almost hidden. We see again and again the mention that God is multiplying his people. In verse 7, he says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. In verse 12, we see it again. Even though they're being oppressed, even though they're in slavery, he's hoping to kind of tire them out and separate them from their families and hard work in different parts of the country. But no, against his best will, in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. This is the fulfillment of God's plan. He told them that he would take them to, and make them a great nation in, in Egypt. Even though they're going through this great suffering, no, God is multiplying his people. He's doing exactly what he told them he would do. Even in the, in the pain, even in the suffering, the hidden purposes of God are at work. Pharaoh thinks he's in control. He thinks he can stop what God's doing. No, he can't. He's not in control. The living God is. This is this kind of satanic attack. You, it's a recapitulation of Eden. See the way um, you've got, the, they are being faithful. They're being fruitful and multiplied as they were told to in Eden. How the snake, Pharaoh, comes trying to manipulate the women just like the snake came to Eve. But, and he, what's he trying to do? He's trying to destroy the seed of women, trying to, trying to kill off the lineage, trying to stop God's promises. But no, no, Satan will not have the last word here. God will bring about his purposes and he will thwart the plans of Satan in this moment. God is not surprised by this moment of suffering they're going through. He foretold them that it would happen. In Genesis 15, he said they would be slaves and they would be there for hundreds of years. He stands above it. God's will can't be thwarted. The sovereignty of God is a great comfort in suffering. Now, some of you say, well, if God is sovereign, if God is somehow above it all, able, sovereignly in control and watching this suffering, then it doesn't that just kind of evil. How can God allow this to happen? No, actually, it's the, quite the opposite. When you know that God is sovereignly in control, even as you go through suffering, you can comfort yourself with the promise that he will bring about his purposes through that suffering and pain. It means we have an absolute hope in pain and suffering. And isn't this the pattern all the way through of God's people? They go through persecution and pain and suffering, and yet God's purposes flourish. Think about Joseph. He said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Think about the cross, how the people saw as it was a moment of murderous regicide, killing the king. A moment of saying, we have no other king. We, they reject Christ. They think they're destroying the purposes of God at that moment. Maybe Satan and the hordes do behind what's going on. And yet, what happens? No, this moment of attack and, kill and death of Christ becomes the moment for the healing and reconciliation of the nations. What, what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. The moment of, of persecution when the disciples are uh, attacked and uh, spread abroad from Judea. Well, actually, that's the beginning of the church being planted across the, across the Roman Empire. Think about how the, Roman, uh, the Romans killed uh, Christians. They made martyrs of them. And yet in their martyrdoms, they drew many to Christ. As they, people saw them being willing to die for the faith, actually, that, was a, that, that drew people to Christ against the odds. God will be working out his purposes sovereignly through pain and suffering. This is why C.H. Spurgeon gives this pastoral encouragement to his people. He says, be patient then, my brethren, admits the persecutions and trials that you may be called upon to bear and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel and the honor of Christ. 
We don't know all the pictures here, but we can be pretty sure that this persecution, this suffering had a purpose. Perhaps it weaned the people of Israel off any, t- any possibility that they might kind of find themselves draw- brought into the Egyptians and kind of uh, going into all kinds of syncretism. Perhaps it stopped them from doing that. Perhaps it made them long for the promised land. We don't even really know. And that's the point. You don't have to know all the purposes of God. I speculate now that God is using this season to humble the nations, to draw people to Christ, and to refine and shape and discipline and, and, and strengthen his church. I speculate that, but I don't, I don't know fully. And that's the point. I don't have to because I know that God will work out his purposes through this season. Isn't that great comfort as we trudge through what feels like a difficult time? God will work out his purposes. God will have the final victory. As these women held on to the prom- uh, to, in, through this suffering, they not only knew that God was working, they also knew that God would have the final word. They knew that he would bring them out. I'm sure as they went through this suffering, I'm sure as they, they hundreds of years potentially of suffering, as, as, they, as they were going through this hard time, they had to repeat to themselves the promises of God. And one promise they could hold on to is that he told them he will bring them out of Egypt. He will bring them to the promised land. They won't see it necessarily. They are like a, a link in the chain that through the generations that eventually they see the freedom that their people would have. But up to then, they just had to faithfully hold on, to walk in obedience, to walk confidently, not despairing, but walk faithfully with a, with a conviction and the promise that God would have the victory. Isn't that the same for us today, brothers and sisters? Even as we go through suffering, we need to walk with the confidence that God will have the final victory, that he will bring an end to disease and suffering and death. He will bring an end to oppression and persecution. Even when we see the church at a low ebb in this nation, we know a day is coming when Christ will come and the nations will bow before him and every knee will bow. Even as we experience suffering in this life, we always know the promise that Christ will have the final world word. So we can walk forward with our head held high, confident of the victory that Christ will have. So don't despair. Walk in confident faith. Our God is sovereign. He's not weak. He's not feeble. Walk with him and allow him to work out his purposes in your life in this season. I don't want to be fatalistic about this. When we say God will work out his purposes, you can resist his purposes in your life. Or at least it can feel that way. You can put two fingers up to God and say, I'm going to do my own thing now. I'm going to be resentful, so to speak. I'm going to ignore you. No, actually, what this requires is walking in obedience with him. Cooperating with his purposes in your life. Allow him to humble you. I just keep coming back. The picture that resonates again and again as I pray is a picture of, I know I keep talking about exercise. I really don't do very much exercise. I'm sorry. Um, but, but I kind of pick a picture of doing a press-up and you know that kind of the pain, yeah, a press-up, that, that, <laughs> uh, that pain you feel in that moment. Um, it, it's hard, but it's good. It's for your health. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. Anyway, um, walk in obedience. Don't give up. Suffering does not mean that God is silent. COVID looms large like a foreign intruder, pretending to rob us of our joy and purpose and future. But no, the the living God is above it all. He is sovereign and he will have his way. They had to repeat that that to themselves, I'm sure. So must we. And finally then, don't give up. Those who fear God walk in obedience even when it's costly. 
Think about the, this pattern. We've talked about fearing God. We've talked about it as an attitude, about revering and awing and worshipping the living God. And it, that is there. But actually, if you look at the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you will see again and again, the idea of fearing God is actually about your actions. It's about what you do. The Hebrew midwives feared God, and so they ignored Pharaoh, and they were faithful. Abraham feared God, and so he was willing to take his son and put him on the altar. Elsewhere, and Joseph says to his brothers, because I fear God, you can trust me. I'm going to be, faith- I'm going to be honest. In, in Exodus, Jethro tells Moses to uh, appoint certain men as kind of um, under-shepherds, and he um, He says, pick men who hate bribes, who are uh, trustworthy, and who fear God. To fear God is to walk in faithfulness. You cannot say you fear God. You cannot say you awe him and worship him and revere him and recognize his sovereignty and recognize his majesty and then ignore him. Obedience to the living God is the ultimate authenticating mark that you really fear God, that you really worship him. Why, Why is that? Well, first of all, it means you recognize his authority. You see his true majesty. Think about these Hebrew midwives. When they reject what Pharaoh is saying to them, what they're actually saying is, Pharaoh, you don't have authority here. The living God has the ultimate authority in our lives. And so you, when you, take, when you claim to be able to take life away, that's not your place. What it says, to, to obey God in this way is to say, God, you have authority over every area of my life. How easy it is to kind of parcel away, whether it be your working life or your relationship or different elements of your life. You say, somehow you justify to yourself disobedience. You say, well, no, this doesn't count or this is hard. Kind of self-pity maybe going through your mind. And yet, no, it says, no, quite the opposite. When when you fear God, you you recognize his authority. You recognize that he is the Lord over every part of your lives. There may be moments when that authority is challenged. What I mean by that is you will get conflicting demands. You see that here. Pharaoh's telling them to do something that they know is wrong. And actually, I look forward to you having those moments in your life when your colleagues ask you to lie, when you're in a relationship with someone and they ask you to do something that's wrong. When, when, When you get those moments, that is the moment, brothers and sisters, when you get to show the ultimate authority in your life is not man, is not these other authorities, is not whoever's telling you to do that, it's the living God. Those aren't moments to be avoided. Those are moments to be, to be grasped hold of and say, no, we worship one who's above you all. Think about it in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin and they say, stop talking about Jesus. And they say, basically, you know, judge for yourself whether it's right or wrong to do this, but we cannot but obey what the living God has told us to do in this moment. So it's recognizing his authority. You fear his rebuke for disobedience. Now, don't get me wrong, the people of God do not walk in a fear of, of ultimate judgment in terms of, um, they do not fear hell in that kind of direct way. What it is, means is that they know that God is not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. What that means is he's not to be trifled with. The, the abundant, overflowing grace of God does not mean you can trifle with sin. does not mean you can just kind of do what you want. No, they, they revere God. They say, no, actually, to, to, to kind of play with sin is not something that belongs in the heart of the one who fears the living God. It's not servile fear. It's not the fear of a servant who says, no, I couldn't go near him because he was, I was worried what my master would say. It's the fear of a, of a son, a son who loves his father, 
but still awes him and reveres him and would think, I don't want to go, I don't want to do what against him, go against him. And finally, it means you want to obey. To fear God means you want to obey him. Because fearing God is about trusting him. It's about loving him. It's about seeing his glory and adoring him. So actually, if you don't have, if you are struggling with obedience right now, if you have a disobedience problem in your life, so to speak, if you have a sin in your life, actually the first place is not pea shooter regulations. It's not different, you know, cut that off or don't do that. Yeah, that's all good. Actually, you've got to go back to your heart and say, "Do do I trust him? Do I love him? Do I worship him? Do I adore him? Focus on your heart for the problem of obedience. But you've got to take this the other way. You've got to say, in this season, the very thing God requires from you is faithful obedience. In suffering, it's always hard. Obedience always feels harder. Because it's much easier for self-pity to creep in and to feel like, oh, you know, this is kind of okay, isn't it? Because I'm really finding things hard. The same reason I go to the shop and buy lots of chocolate or whatever because you know it's, things are hard at least I can give myself some nice chocolate or whatever we all, we all kind of give ourselves permission in suffering that lie that I can't resist feels stronger when you're feeling isolated which I know some of us are actually it's in these difficult seasons that your obedience to the living God will be tested and proved and found, found real It's in this moment that you can say, actually, I'm going to obey him, even when I don't feel like I've got his bountiful gifts and all the goodness. Actually, that's when we really see real obedience, isn't it? That's when we really show that you really trust him and you believe his promises. And equally, I just want to say, some of you say, what does God require of me? Actually, what God requires you is just to faithfully walk in obedience in this season. When you do that, you are walking in. That's that's all that God requires of you in this season, to walk faithfully and obediently. And, not, and you've got to remember, your obedience will be rewarded. Think about these midwives. Because they feared God, they were rewarded. They're probably old women, and yet they're rewarded with children. Let's think about what it means to be a follower of God. This will feel painful for you. You will not see the reward necessarily in this life. But when Christ returns, he, will, he talks in Mark about the, the doorkeeper who's watching out for the master to return. And when he returns, he will, he will say to his servants, we hope, well done, good and faithful servants. For those who endure, there's a crown of life. Walk in faithfulness because there is a reward. It may be very painful, but he is coming back. But finally, I want to leave you with a conclusion. There may be times that you don't feel like the the Hebrew midwives. There may be times when you feel like you've failed to be fearless. Where anxiety has won the day. Where those other things loom large in your mind. Days when you struggle to believe that God will work out his purposes in your suffering or you give in to temptation when life feels difficult. And at that moment, we have wonderful news. There is one who was perfectly fearless, perfectly trusting the Father for his purposes and perfectly obedient. I said at the beginning that these Hebrew midwives point us to Christ. As we walk in what will be inevitable patchy obedience... You will never be perfectly faithful, but there is one who walked through suffering and oppression and rejection for our sake. And his willingness to even take on the attack of Satan, to absorb his murderous and destructive plans, ironically means that we can be reconciled to God despite our failures. We can marvel at these women. We can seek to take on their posture. They are an example for us, but they also point us to Christ to say, Brothers and sisters, we have one who was perfectly faithful. 
Never, do not, do not walk away discouraged if you do not feel like your life does not match these women. Instead, look to Christ to know that there is one who is perfectly faithful and who's put his spirit in you to work out that perfect faithfulness, to make you more like Christ, to kind of put in the spirit, the spirit of the Hebrew midwives in you, so to speak, because he will work out his purposes in you. His mercies are new every morning. His grace welcomes us home and gives us the power and ongoing strength to walk in obedience, even when things are difficult. The band are going to come up. We, I want to invite you. We're going to come to the table in a moment. Um, we're going to take communion for those of us who are here. But this moment, we're first going to start with some worship. We're going to worship Christ as our faithful hero. We're going to remember Actually, first of all, there may be a moment to repent. There may be some moment here where you think, actually, I haven't acted like like God is calling me to. So I want to invite you as we worship to to turn to God and actually to recognize where this isn't true of you. But we're going to also, in this moment of worship, take great courage from his grace, great courage from the knowledge that Christ will work out his purposes in us and through us. As we come to this moment of worship, it's important that we lift our eyes again to the majesty and the living God, that we, that we embody this fear of God in this moment together, that we recognize there is one who stands above it all, who is sovereign and powerful and will have his victory. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the reality that you will work out your purposes in our lives. I want to thank you, just as the Hebrew midwives took comfort from the idea that you are with them, we too take comfort from the fact that you are with us by your Spirit. I want to thank you that your grace is never-ending, even when we've allowed anxiety to overwhelm us, that we can come again to you now and receive your grace. We can come again and marvel at your majesty, we can come again and see your glory and recognize that anything we might have been fearing is tiny and insignificant compared to you, the living God. So we worship you, Lord. We glorify your name. We say you are the king. You are the king of our lives. We say have your way, Lord. We want to walk in fear of you. We want to worship you, Lord. We want to glorify your name with every part of our lives because you're so worthy, Lord. Thank you, Lord.